When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could with things I picked up along the way. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take what I'm hearing and feeling, and I try to answer those things for you, usually in coordination with the daily office readings. The daily office is a prayers for the whole church to pray every day, and they have scripture readings with them. Um, we do them on Zoom every day, so if you'd like to join us for that, you're certainly welcome. Always just reach out to me, runnermonk at gmail.com, and um, I'll be able to get you those links and everything. But today, um, we're reading the prophecy of Amos, um, which always has a prophetic word, not just for his day, but hopefully for ours as well, as we think about economics. The prophet Amos says that he is a shepherd and his imagery is often the imagery of shepherding. Uh, We often think of the New Testament examples of the Lord is my shepherd, uh, Jesus imagery, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. But this is a much older metaphor for God's interactions with God's people. It goes back to the prophets. It goes back to the Psalms, like I mentioned, Psalm 23. But Amos is is the shepherd prophet. Um, He's not the son of a prophet. He didn't come by this profession because he he was born into it. He has been out tending the sheep and has noticed things. And this first, um, or the oracle that he speaks here, is about how a shepherd will pull a sheep that has been attacked by a lion out of the lion's mouth. But there won't be much left of the sheep. But still, the shepherd will get that last bit away from the lion. Um, Rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear. Uh, That's all that's left of the sheep. But even that, the shepherd will go in and get that. Maybe because the more you feed the lions, the more lions come. Um, Maybe just personal pride. Maybe love. Um, Love for the sheep. It's hard to know. It doesn't say why the shepherd does this. But just as that will happen, so will the people of Samaria be rescued just by what's left of them. Uh, All that is left of them, whether it's an ear or two legs the corner of a couch, part of a bed. I think that might mean like a sort of an edge of a blanket or something like that. A scrap of cloth will be rescued. But this is what the testimony of God against Samaria is saying, and against Israel too. They have built up so much wealth, they now own two homes. They own a summer home and a winter home. Um, which makes life pretty good when you live in a hot place or a cold place. You go to the summer home when it's hot and you go to the winter home when it's cooler or vice versa. Um, Just like Texans, the smart ones and rich ones always have a place to live up in Colorado that they go to every July and come back in November, wherever it's safe to come back. And this was not uncommon in that day, but you had to have a, a certain amount of means to do this. And then there's the ivory houses. 
Houses made of ivory? The great houses. Um, they have amassed so much wealth. And it's not just rich men who have done this. It's not just rich men. It is rich women who have done this. Um, who are referred to uh, in this passage as the cows of Bashan, who live on Mount Samaria. Um, somehow this is connected to uh, the, the, the second temple or the temple that's set up there in Samaria, sort of an alternative temple to the one in Jerusalem that Jesus gets into a discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well about this temple on Mount Gerizim. You can go to Mount Gerizim today and there's still Samaritans who worship there and feel that that is the true temple where God's spirit has dwelled with God's people from time immemorial. But the problem is not that they have this separate temple or that they're women or anything like that. The, the problem is that they crush the needy um, in, their, in their indulgence and their per, pursuit of happiness and pleasure. Bring me something to drink, they say. Um, they seem to be obsessed with alcohol and parties. Um, this is what has happened, that they have neglected the needs of the poor. Uh, and so this awful situation will happen, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity. These will happen. And we know the prophecy that Amos gives is that they'll be taken away with fish hooks. They'll put hooks in their noses and mouths and drag them away in, in humiliation. The Babylonians do this famously to the king, um, the kings and other noble families as we find out in Chronicles and Kings. But this is the problem. The problem is that they have built a system that only benefits them. And whenever we do this, whenever we build a system that primarily benefits us, which self-interest is a good motivator to do something, it always has been, always will be, but when self-interest becomes me-interest only, uh, it is destructive. And we always have to think about what our actions and decisions are doing for other people. Um, we often think of, um, we don't think of these things as being evil, owning a summer home perhaps. Um, but we have to look at how our decisions impact the poor and the needy, because that is what Amos is caring about. And that is what the word of God cares about today. The prophetic word of God says, if you have two of something, Maybe you should think about someone who needs that. As John Chrysostom said, the extra food in your cupboard belongs to the poor. The extra money in your bank account belongs to the poor. Um, he got kicked out of his job for saying things like that in Constantinople many years ago. But the principle is still the same. The prophet's voice echoes down through time and space and says, if you don't notice these things and these people and you don't take care of them, in a way that benefits them, uh, the destruction will happen. It'll be inevitable, and there's nothing you can do about it. No amount of offerings, no amount of religious worship, no amount of uh, tithes or anything will fix that, um, as he says at the end of his prophetic word. So we hear this prophetic word, and we look at ourselves, and we look at the world around us, and we say, what can we do to benefit those in need today? Amen. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Lord be with you, and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today is the day the church remembers Nicholas Farrar. Um, Not always a household name for modern Americans, but he was a, um, a lot of things. He was born in 1592, so like 100 years after Columbus discovered uh, San Salvador and sailed over here. Um, you have 100 years later his birth. An English scholar, courtier, in other words, a government official, and businessman um, who was ordained as a deacon. He lost much of his fortune in the Virginia Company, Um, by investing in the failed colonization efforts in Virginia and still had, I guess, enough money to retreat (laughs) with his extended family in 1626 to the manor of Little Gidding in Huntingdonshire for the remaining years of his life. And there at Little Gidding, he did something that no other Anglicans were doing at that time. He started basically a monastic community with his immediate family and extended family, relatives that lived with him. Um, As often the the nobility of England did, they lived sort of extended families all together in one big house. But he established sort of a monastic life for them. They prayed morning prayer, evening prayer. They they prayed through the Psalms like 24-7, 24 hours a day. Um, It was... It was his collaboration with the poet and priest, George Herbert, that, um, that brought a lot of George Herbert's uh, really beautiful poetry to light, uh, which I commend to you. But uh, this, this idea that, um, that you, could, you could do this thing that was denounced as Protestant nunnery, um, often mo- he was often mocked by his Protestant Anglicans of his day, but the, um, the real communal life of prayer that he started eventually bore seeds in the church of England and the church in America, um, because the church in America is being founded right about this time as well. And so what we're doing today in morning prayer is to follow in Nicholas Farrar's and others' footsteps. It says, actually, every Christian 
should have a daily habit of prayer of some kind, whether it's like this or somewhere else or on your own or whatever you do. This is a good thing for all Christians to be able to do, and the church should try to make this available for as many people as possible. We're not always good at that, but we're trying to do what he did back in his day. Um, he was a, in, he was an influence on King Charles I. If you know anything about the English Civil War that happened in England uh, between Charles I on the royalist side and the parliamentarians, Oliver Cromwell eventually rises to power um, in the English Civil War, and they win. The parliamentarians win. They beat the royalists and end up executing King Charles I. But Charles I was influenced by Nicholas Farrar. He visited Little Gidding several times and took refuge there um, after the Battle of Naseby. But he saw in the pattern of Little Gidding the kind of church that he wanted for England and, and for the English colonies that eventually became America. A church that prays together, a church that prays every day. Um, that was what Charles I wanted. He knew that if he gave in to the more Protestant Presbyterian influences in England at the time, that he would be sacrificing this um, kind of spirituality that, for his people. And so even the execution of Charles I, a martyr for the, for the Episcopal Church of England, uh, he, uh, we see that he had an influence even on a king. So praying every day, has an influence on people far beyond um, what we can ever ask or imagine. And if we look at the influence of Christianity on the world, it was always little movements of little people doing ordinary things consistently over time that had the biggest influence on anything. Look at the life of St. Francis. Look at the life of the medieval saints that we venerate and respect. It was because they showed up every day and they prayed it wasn't because they did anything glamorous or spectacular. Um, it was because they were consistent to what God had called them to do. So it's good to be in the company of Nicholas Farrar today as we, who were part of his failed Virginia colony, the descendants of that, um, pray these prayers that he would have wanted us to pray and established a pattern for us to do, to revive this practice in the Church of England. Lord God, make us worthy of your perfect love that with your deacon, Nicholas Farrar, and his household, we may rule ourselves according to your word and serve you with our whole heart through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.